Several years after the death of the Apostle John, right around 125 AD, a man by the name of Aristides attempted to defend Christianity to the Roman Emperor by the name of Hadrian, and his defense was scripted and it became known as an apology or a defense of the Christian faith. I read much of it, whittled down just a few lines, and I want to quote from it as we begin. He wrote this, Christians persuade others to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, that is when they become Christians, they call them without distinction brothers. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with necessary food. They observe the commandments of their Messiah. They live honestly and soberly. They praise God for their food and their drink. They render him thanks. Such is the law of the Christian, and such is his manner of life. As we return to John's first letter, 1 John, you may remember he used the word in the last two paragraphs, love, and he used it 27 times. It's little wonder that his earlier nickname from the Lord, a son of thunder, would be changed by the early church over time to the apostle of love. He loved the Lord. He loved the church. He loved the word. He loved his children in the faith. He desired they walk in truth, and he longed to see that more than anything else. But this apostle of love could also be entitled or nicknamed the apostle of certainty. In fact, in his closing remarks, which we have categorized as chapter 5, which we're going to cover not today, but over these next few months, the verb, the verb to know is repeated seven times. We know that we may know that you may know. He wants us to, to lock down some truths. It's going to appear over and over. Now, if I can just take a sidestep or a rabbit trail for just a moment, the Greek language is very precise, much more so than the English language. We simply have it translated in our New Testaments, we know or you know. However, there are two different verbs that he goes back and forth using them depending upon their their context. Sometimes he'll use the verb gnosko, which is to know by means of personal experience. You know something is true because you experienced it. In other words, you know that the oven is hot because you touched it. And so you learned that truth by personal experience, that painful truth. Sometimes John will use the verb oida, which means to know because it has been revealed to you. It's simply been declared. In fact, your mother told you not to touch the oven because it was hot. She declared truth to you, and you could have known that and, and avoided the pain. But you decided not to work on that which was revealed, and you wanted to experience, and so you touched it, and you learned the hard way. John is going to switch from one verb to the other, depending on the context, so that in, in like for instance, in verse 3, he's going to talk about knowing This love of the brethren. You don't know that because somebody told you. You know that because you experience it. You demonstrate it. However, in verse 20, he's going to say, you know the Son of God has appeared. 
We weren't there. We didn't experience it, but we know it because we believe what God has revealed or declared to us in his word. These are truths, whether you're a Greek student or not, that John wants us to know. It's as if he wants to remove doubting and uncertainty from the hearts and minds of these early believers and certainly by God's own spirit inspiring him to write these words. He wants us to be relieved of doubting and uncertainty as well. If you wanted to write a headline over chapter 5 to define effectively the theme of these verses, if you wrote the words without a doubt, that would be right on the money. The first truth that John wants to lock down for us is what it means to be a Christian. What it means, who we actually are. Who we actually are. Having traveled a lot this, this past uh, fall, I couldn't help it but chuckle at this story I read about where a, a heavily booked flight out of Denver was canceled. I, that happened to me this summer in D.C., canceled. That doesn't mean that you can wait an hour and get another flight. That means it's canceled because of the storm, and I ended up renting a car to get home after six hours of driving. But they canceled this one flight out of Denver. That caused this long line of passengers to have to rebook, and there was only one agent, one very weary agent, who was doing her best rebooking this long line of inconvenienced travelers. Suddenly, this article said, an angry, irate passenger pushed his way to the front of the line, slapped his ticket down on the counter, and said, I have to be on the next flight, and it has to be first class. The agent said, I'm sorry, sir, I'll be happy to help you, but I have to take care of all these other people first who are in line. The passenger demanded in a voice loud enough for everyone in the terminal to hear, do you have any idea who I am? Without hesitating, the agent picked up her microphone and said, May I have your attention? We have a passenger here who doesn't have any idea who he is. (laughs) He asked me if I have any idea, and I don't. So if you happen to know, please step forward. (laughs) The man huffed away, and the people burst into applause. I'd love to see that. I'd love to have seen that. Truth be told, that is a question that resonates in every human heart. Maybe not said that way and in that context, but it is the question, do you know who I am? Do you know who you are? Do you know to whom you belong? John, the apostle, doesn't want any doubting, any apprehension over who we are and whom we belong. So he launches in this first phrase, into what we'll simply call, for the sake of an outline, our family kinship. Notice the first part of verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Stop there for a moment. Now, to understand the tenses of these verbs is to understand his meaning. John is saying that the person who continually, persistently believes that Jesus is the Christ, is revealing that they are alive in God. That they have been born again. The evidence of being born again is that you believe that Jesus is 
the Christ. You, you belong to the family of God. You, by faith in him, that faith demonstrates that you have been brought to life by means of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel in the person of Christ. Now to believe means you are putting your trust in. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's loaded. And we've, we've dealt with that in this letter. That's freighted with theological truth. That you believe that Jesus is the Christ means that you believe that Jesus is more than a man. That he was a good teacher. He was a good model. Hey, somebody we're trying to live up to. Glad he came to earth and lived, you know, for 33 years or so unfortunate the way he had to die. Now, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, it means that you are believing that he is the divinely anointed Messiah. Beloved, you will never come to terms with who you are until you understand who he is and find in him your identity and kinship. In my research, I uncovered one particular article, which wasn't really surprising to me, but the article was entitled, The Startling Beliefs of Our Future Ministers. They surveyed several major denominational seminaries, men who were preparing to go into the life work of ministry. And they asked them these questions. Do you believe in a physical resurrection? That is, when you die, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, your spirit's with the Lord, you're going to have that body physically resurrected, rejoined, the body will be glorified in that eternal kingdom, or after the kingdom. Do you believe this? 54% said no. Do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? 56% said no. Do you believe in the deity of Christ? 89% said no. Do you believe in the literal second coming of Christ? 99% said no. And you're left like me to wonder, why didn't they choose another occupation? The really troubling thing about that survey, by the way, is that it was taken in 1961. It's been 50 years where mainline denominationalism has lost sight of the identity we have in Jesus Christ. And if there is confusion up here, can we ever expect anything but more confusion out there? John is actually going further than some survey or some creedal statement, some box you can check. He's actually pointing us to a living person. Did you notice the present tense? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. You ought to circle that little word. You could miss it. He's not saying whoever believes that Jesus was, you know, a great guy, or maybe he was, but no, he isn't really anything now. He's He's dead. Now, this is an implication of his resurrection. Jesus is the anointed Messiah. Listen, your unchanging, secure, eternal identity in Christ is possible because of that present tense verb. Because of his unchanging, eternal identity as your living Messiah. Jesus is, right now, the Christ. John doesn't want you to doubt your eternal family kinship. 
Now, let me point out what he points out, and that is his reference to our family fellowship. Last part of verse 1. And whoever, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? If you love God, you'll love his children. If you have fellowship with the father, you're going to enjoy the fellowship of the assembly, those who claim him as father. In fact, Jesus Christ had effectively said earlier to his disciples, the world will know you are my disciples, if I could insert here, by how many times you pray. The Lord will know you are my disciples by how many times you gather to worship. The Lord will know, uh, the world will know you are my disciples by how many verses you can quote. All those, by the way, are wonderful things, but that isn't what he said. In fact, the world isn't really going to pick up on any of that. Truth is, there are religions out there that meet more than we do. What they're going to sense as uniquely different, Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by your what? Love. That's unique. That's unique. That's supernatural. This was the remarkable characteristic referred to by Aristides as he wrote to the Roman emperor. In fact, the scoffer and unbeliever, Julian, the Roman emperor who wrote later in the 4th century, said this, and I quote him. I love this. Their teacher has implanted the belief in them that they are all related. Isn't that great? Their teacher has taught them, that implanted in them this idea that they are related. They actually consider themselves members of the same family. Imagine that. And by the way, it isn't a matter of compatibility, is it? It's a matter of genealogy. We happen to be brothers and sisters because we track back to the Father who gave us a life by means of the Spirit. And we demonstrate our life by believing in God the Son as our anointed Messiah. So it isn't, it isn't compatibility. We haven't gathered here today because we're all just alike. We're very different aren't we? We come from all over. In fact, I just started as one of the things we just began, this greenhouse class. And it's one of the largest classes I've ever taught, about 140 adults. And some told me today they're going to come on Wednesday night, which is great. This is about the last time you can jump in until I'll teach you to get in next fall. But we went around the room and, and probably 120 of these individuals have begun coming to this church in the last 10 uh, months. Brand new. And uh, in fact, a few of them had only been here for six weeks. Put all of us to shame. You know, six weeks. They're in greenhouse. Uh, one young lady I met, I don't know if I mentioned this to you last Lord's Day, but she actually just began coming. She pulled in. She took a wrong turn. Ended up in our parking lot. Couldn't get out. Just stayed. <laughs> a lot less effort to just stay than try to leave. She's now in our college ministry. I talked to her. Uh, uh, Benjamin about that. Just, just really, really cute. Uh, they've come from all over in this greenhouse class. Some found us by driving down Tryon Road. Just popped into the welcome class over here. Three families just asking and answering questions. And one of them said, well, we just drove down the street and 
in greenhouses, it's the same thing. We thought you were a college. We didn't know what you were. And the sign is totally ineffective. It says colonial. And it's pretty, good flowers, which looks nice, but nobody knows who we are. But at any rate, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm off the track. But uh, at, at, some of them listened to the radio. Some Googled on Internet and found us that way. Most um, of them were invited by family and, and friends. I did a little survey, which I like to do at the beginning of your greenhouse class, to just kind of find out where everybody's coming from. And it's, it's just all over the, the map as well. I mean, they, in this particular class, there are people from California, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, China, the Ukraine, West Africa, Texas. That's a foreign country. We have a contingency from Texas, I assume, huh? I mean, how are we ever going to get along? Especially with those Texans. <laughs> Let me do a quick survey. How many of you moved down here from the north? Go home. <laughs> I mean, welcome here. So I'm, I keep forgetting. That's what I've been trained to say. Welcome who am I to say? I was born in Minnesota, so thank you for having me. It's fascinating to observe the early church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, the place where Christians were first rather derisively called little Christs, Christians. It was a slanderous name that stuck that we love to this day. They were first called Christians in Antioch. This was a city where church was planted and led by men from a diversity of ethnic, educational, society, societal, and even racial backgrounds. Just a hodgepodge. And Acts 11.21, it's a great text where it says, and the hand of the Lord was upon them. I love that. So the folks in Jerusalem hear about it. It's not a church plant. So they send Barnabas down there to check it out. And he goes over to Antioch and, and it says, And he witnessed the grace of God and rejoiced. Isn't that wonderful? The Apostle Paul would later write to the Ephesians of their faith and love for each other. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. Why? Because we belong to one another in this family Fellowship, a true, genuine, authentic New Testament church does not open its doors to only one social strata. A true church doesn't focus on one age group. A a church doesn't pursue only one social demographic. If you can believe it, when I was in seminary, that stuff was all the rage. Targeting a demographic. I think that's an abomination, frankly. A church does not accept only one ethnic background or one race. That isn't a church. That's an embarrassment to the gospel of Christ. The grace of God. The gospel of God's grace supernaturally produces in those willing to work toward it harmony in the midst of diversity. It isn't a matter of uniformity. 
It's a matter of unity in the spirit by means of sound doctrine, Titus chapter 1. In fact, when you think about it, the church really isn't considered a mixture of races as much as it is considered the creation of a new race. Brand new. By our second Adam, Jesus Christ, who's created the race so that we can be called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. I love that translation. Uh, A people of his own, uniquely belonging to him. Why? So that we can show forth the praises of him who has called us all out of darkness into this marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 9. We then are equally united by faith, made brothers and sisters in Christ. So we not only share a a family kinship in Christ, we demonstrate a family fellowship. Frankly, John says here, if you love the Father, you're going to love his children too, no matter where they came from or who they are. Throughout this letter, the Apostle John has stressed this characteristic of love, hasn't he? In chapter 2, he writes, The one who loves his brother abides in the light. Chapter 2, verse 10. In the next chapter, he writes, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Isn't that interesting? It can be obvious. How? Those who belong to God practice righteousness and love their brothers. In chapter 4, even more pointedly, he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's speaking within the context of the assembly. Also in chapter 4, he exhorts the church, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. In my research, I found this interesting quote by Minucius Felix, a Roman lawyer who lived also in the second century. And he wrote this about the Christians and you can kind of hear his bewilderment. He can't quite figure it out. He says this, they, the Christians, they love each other without really being acquainted. Isn't that great? Isn't that true? There's this immediate relationship. You found it true on that airplane, in that classroom, at work. You find out that person is a Christian. And it's like you leapfrog over 10 years of having to get to know them. There's just this immediate foundation in Christ. Even though you are just barely acquainted. That's actually the work of God. John now throws a twist into the next phrase. Look at verse 2. He's still talking about family fellowship. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Isn't that odd? You'd think he'd write, by this we know that we love God when we love the children of God. That's not what he said. He turns it around. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. That isn't a slip of his pen at all. He's telling us that our family fellowship is traveling full circle. We love God the Father and we demonstrate it by loving each other. We love each other and that's a demonstration that we actually love God the Father. He's also making an interesting point here. He's effectively saying, just as you cannot love God without loving each other, you really can't love each other unless you love God. 
Isn't any problem that we might have in an assembly a reflection of our love for Christ? Just as in your home, your love for each other is built upon the foundation of your love and commitment to Christ, so also in the church, family, your love for each other is nothing more than a demonstration of your love for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the full circle of the love of God. This is our family kinship. This is our family fellowship. One more point, John reminds us of our family stewardship. Look at the last part of verse 2. He's talking about revealing our love for each other and for God the Father. When we notice, observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. You might circle the word observe and the word keep. They sound redundant, but they have a little different nuance. Before I get to that, note here the word for commandment is not referring to the Ten Commandments. Or even some list of Old Testament commandments uniquely given to the nation Israel. In fact, nine of the ten are repeated to the church in some way, shape, or form, except for that Sabbath commandment, which was uniquely a sign of Israel's commitment to to God, uh, their Lord. The word for commandment in the New Testament is, is simply a broad reference to the word of God. It's the word of God. In fact, our Lord even characterized his teaching as a new commandment. John 15, 10. Now I want you to notice what John says we're to do with the commandments of God. Literally the word of God, that applicable, those, those truths applicable to the New Testament believer. In verse 2, he writes to observe them. That means practice them. Physically put them into shoe leather. In verse 3... He writes that loving God is evidenced by the way we keep his commandments. That verb, to keep, is a little different. It has the connotation of stewarding this treasure, of of protecting, of guarding, of keeping watch over the word of God. You love the word of God. You're in the word of God. You're reading the word of God. You're practicing it, but you're guarding it. You treasure it. That's what you do. With something you treasure, you watch over it. With our grandson, I've realized how fast technology has grown. Back in the day, we used to have a monitor that would emit sounds with our babies. And now, they've gone way beyond that to where you can buy little things that have a little television screen or it looks like a little monitor. And you can not only hear them, but watch them. And our a son and his wife were over with Nicholas and, and they wanted to put him up in the bedroom in our room and realized we didn't have a monitor. So what are we going to do? And no problem. A couple iPhones. FaceTime. Prop one up. Keep watch over the little treasure. It's fascinating how you will steward that which you consider valuable. This is the connotation of carefully guarding a precious treasure. So that first verb, to observe, has to do with physical activity. The second verb, to keep, has to do with an internal attitude. We carefully steward this treasure of God. And by the way, we understand that these commands of God are given by a God who loves us, who wants to protect us. He might say, don't touch that because he knows. Will we listen to his revelation or will we have to experience it? 
One author said, his commandments are not intended to to weigh us down. They are wings to help us fly. Great quote. Which is exactly, by the way, the verdict that John is drawing here. Notice the last part of verse 3. He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Burdens. Which carries the idea of this oppressive weight. It's the same word translated savage. Paul used to the Ephesian elders when he said, I know when I leave, savage wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. There in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 29. It's also the same word translated heavy. As Jesus described the heavy, legalistic burden the Pharisees were placing upon the shoulders of the Jewish people. Matthew 23, verse 4. If you want to please God, here, here's the burden. Oh, isn't that the contemporary view of God to this day? You're a follower of God? Oh, is he a killjoy or what? Right? Christianity? What a drag on life. No, the truth is exactly the opposite. There is no heavier burden than a guilty conscience. There's nothing that weighs you down like sin. The tyrant of sin stoops you over. Jesus Christ promised that his truth however, would set us, what? Free. John 8, 32. Not drag us down. In fact, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy. If I were to ask you, give me a word for Christianity, none of us would say easy, would we? In fact, we've discovered it's impossible apart from the Spirit of God, which is uh, perhaps lost in the translation. What does it mean, my yoke is easy? You've got to travel back to the days of Jesus Christ, even today around the world, actually. Go back to the time of Christ where he was a carpenter before entering the ministry. and He would have a farmer bring him an ox, and and, uh, he would take a piece of wood, and he would create a yoke. He'd first take measurements of that ox, that his neck size is... The, the, the breadth of his shoulders. And then he'd go to work carving based on those measurements. And when he'd carved out that yoke, he'd have that farmer bring that ox back and he'd set it on the shoulders of that ox. And he might sand a little here, plane a little there, take off a little more over here because he knew it wasn't sitting in a balanced fashion. It would chafe. It would rub. One part of that oxen would pull and it would hurt. And so he had to just make it a perfect custom fit. There's a legend that Jesus made the best yoke in all of Galilee. I would imagine he would because of his hard work. But we do know from Justin Martyr, in fact, an interesting second century leader made the comment that farmers were still using the yoke carved by Jesus nearly a hundred years after he carved them because of his care. William Barclay 
said, you know what? And he was make believe, but he said, you could probably go to the carpenter shop where Jesus worked and you'd have a, you could have a sign over the door that could read what, 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 uh, John is saying here. And the sign would simply read or what Jesus meant. The sign could say my yokes fit well. That's the idea. My yokes are easy. That mindset meant my yokes are custom made to fit your shoulders. Personally designed. Jesus Christ says when you have a relationship with me, that burden which would be heavy is made light because of the way I custom fit it and then strengthen and empower you to plow through those circumstances in life. Not to burden you down, but to build you up. So then his demands become good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12, 2. The Christian life isn't a drag. His demands become our delight. Why? Because of our kinship with him and our fellowship with the family. It doesn't mean it's easy in the sense we think of easy. The Spirit of God enables us to pull in that harness and with that yoke that Jesus has custom made for us. And he loves us. And we love him. Craig Barnes, a pastor and author for many years, illustrated it this way. He said, when I was a child, my father, also a pastor, brought home a 12-year-old boy named Roger, whose parents had just died from a drug overdose. There was no relative to care for Roger, so my folks decided to adopt him and raise him as if he were one of their own sons. At first, it was quite difficult for Roger to adjust to his new home, an environment free of heroin-addicted adults. So every day, several times a day, I would hear my parents saying to Roger, no, no, that, that's, that's not how we behave in this family. No, no, you don't have to scream or fight or push to get what you want. No, no, Roger, we expect you to show respect for members of the family. Roger began to change over time. He makes the following point. He says, now did Roger have to make all those changes in order to become a part of the family? No. He was made a part of the family simply by the grace of my parents. But did he then have to do a lot of hard work because he was in the family? (laughs) He bet he did. And it was tough. Change always is. Everything he'd ever known was now different. And he would have to work at it. But he was motivated by gratitude for the incredible love and grace he'd received by being brought into this loving family. Craig Barnes makes an application. Let me read it to you. Do you have a lot of hard work to do now that the Spirit has made you a member of the family? (laughs) Certainly. But not in order to become a member of the family. You were made that by grace. Oh, but now you've got a lot of work to do. The Holy Spirit will often convict you when you Slip back into the addictions of your old, selfish, sinful ways. No, 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 uh uh-uh. That's not how we act in the family. And we're all learning what that means, aren't we? 
Now, having expounded on these three verses, let me wrap up our study. I want you to just listen. As I read again from Aristides' apology or defense of the Christian faith. And as I read it, I want you to listen and see how his words are mirrored in the reality of the early church as John would lead them and how it needs to be a reality in ours as well. You'll be able to hear the similarities. Aristides wrote, The Christians persuade others to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they have become so, that is, and when they have become Christians, they call them without distinction brothers. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with necessary food. They observe the commandments of their Messiah. They live honestly, soberly. They praise God for their food and their drink, and they render him thanks. Such is the law of the Christian, and such is his manner of life. Isn't that good? That just sums up 1 John 5, 1 to 3. Let me give you undeniable evidence of the truth of Christianity, the way Christians respond in faith to Christ, the way they relate to one another in love, the way they observe the commandments of Christ with praise and thanksgiving. May be said of us. Such is the law of we Christians. Such is the manner of our lives. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the truth that we can be certain of. That you are the living, anointed, divine Messiah. And our belief in that statement is evidence that we've been brought to life. Thank you for the challenge as well. I know I sure need it. I know my brothers and sisters need it as well. That our kinship should be demonstrated in fellowship. And then we together accepting our Stewardship over precious truth that we keep and guard and communicate and follow. Thank you for the privilege. In your name we thank you. Amen. Now let me say just a couple of other comments with you seated. As you know, our messages are used by the Lord through internet and radio. In fact, we have people listening by way of internet. Even this hour, we'll hear from many of them. And we have our sermons put into about a 25-minute program. And oftentimes, we'll have about 20 seconds to go. It's difficult to time it out, but it has to be, it has to end right at 28.30. 28 minutes and 30 seconds. And often, we will take our closing song that we sing here, that we record, and play it on the radio. I just thought I ought to get your permission. Is that okay with you? All in favor, say aye. Aye. All opposed? At any rate, it's on. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to let you hear, and we estimate conservatively that about 500,000 people listen to the program each morning. I thought it'd be fun for you to hear what you sound like 
on the radio and let you know that your voice is encouraging. We have people comment about they're traveling down the road or in their home and they hear this assembly singing. Sometimes that's the most significant thing they hear in that 28-minute, 30-second program. God really uses that. Would you like to hear what you sound like on the radio? Okay, I brought a couple of clips along. Two courses. All right, go ahead. Let's. By God's word at last my sin I learned chance to be recorded? All right. What do you say we sing to half a million people, okay? More importantly, we're singing to the Lord, and we're allowing them to be part of it as many of them sing along with us. Okay, let's sing. I love you, Lord. 